0: Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Father Knows Best. All right, so as we begin Acts chapter 12, here in a minute, I gotta give you the background so you understand where we are here in the scriptures. And so in a moment, in verse one, we are gonna be introduced to a man called Herod. If you're new to the Bible, you need to know that the the name Herod is not a personal name. No, the name Herod is actually a title, It's it's kind of like Caesar. It's a title given to a dynasty, a family of Idumean monarchs who ruled Palestine for, or at least what would be called Palestine later, who ruled Palestine for over 100 years. When Herod the Great came to to rule in 37 BC, all the way till his great-grandson, Agrippa II, died in AD 92. And so the Herods were Idumean monarchs. In other words, they were from the ancient Edom. In other words, they were Edomites. In other words, they were descendants of Esau. And so the Herods were appointed to their political positions of power by the Roman Empire. And so because the Herods worked for Rome, their Jewish subjects didn't like the Herods very much. The New Testament speaks of six Herods. The first Herod is the most famous of all. He's Herod the Great. You know him from the Christmas story. And so he came to power in 37 BC, and he reigned all the way until 4 BC. He, of course, is the one who murdered all the male infants, actually toddlers too, up to two years old, in Bethlehem in an attempt to destroy the baby Jesus. Did you notice, by the way, that Jesus must have been born before 4 BC? You understand that? Because Herod died in 4 BC. Herod tried to take Jesus out. That means that he lived, Jesus was born, Um, before 4 B.C., maybe 5 B.C. or 6 B.C. And so Herod the Great was a ruthless ruler, but he was also a great builder. And if you go with us to Israel, we'll take you to the Temple Mount in Mount Moriah, the old city of Jerusalem. And and I hope we get permission. We usually do. We'll we'll, we'll take you up to the Temple Mount. You'll see how Herod the Great, this guy, built a giant box on the top of the mountain. It's massive, massive. And of course, he's the one who gave a facelift to the Jewish temple, which was destroyed in AD 70. Of course, now the Dome of the Rock being on the Temple Mount. He's the one who built Masada. If you go with us to Israel, we'll take you in the sky cart up to Masada. And I love watching our first timers, their eyes pop out of their head and their jaws drop open as they see this amazing fortress that Herod the Great built in order to protect himself in case he was ever being uh, attacked by the enemy and, of course, other palaces as well. Now, when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided to his three sons, Archelaus, Antipas, and Philip. So Herod the Great dies in 4 BC. He gives his kingdom to his sons. He gives his, uh, half of his kingdom to his son Archelaus. We'll call him Archie, okay? And so you, if you notice on the map, there's a white beige area, but then there's a darker tan area that has Idumea, Judea, Judea, and Samaria. And so if you see the darker tan area, say amen. Okay, that's what he gave Archie, Archelaus. Herod Archelaus ruled over half of the kingdom, Judea, Idumea, and Samaria. And so after, um, 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 well, before Herod the Great died, he's trying to take out Jesus. Joseph is warned in a dream, take the baby Jesus to Egypt. You guys remember this from the Christmas story? And so Joseph, Mary, and Jesus flee to Egypt. Herod the Great dies. And then an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, take Jesus back to Israel. Joseph is doing that. He's taken the toddler Jesus back to Israel, but then he's warned in another dream that Archelaus, the Tan has taken over Judea in his father's place. He's just as ruthless as Herod the Great. And so Joseph does not take Jesus back to Bethlehem. Do you guys remember where he took Jesus? He took him to Nazareth, to Galilee, and he raised Jesus in Nazareth. And so that's Archelaus. The second son, Antipas, you guys know him, he's more familiar to you. He's the one that beheaded John the Baptist. And his territory was Galilee and Perea. And so if you see the orange areas of Galilee and Perea, please say amen. And so that's a quarter of the kingdom, that's Herod Antipas, and Jesus called him that fox, Herod. And then the third son, his name was Philip, and he was given another fourth of the kingdom north and east of the Sea of Galilee. So if you see the purple area north and east of the Sea of Galilee, please say amen. That's where Philip is. And Philip is uh, ruling over a lot of Greeks and Syrians up there, and he's famous because of who he married. He married Salome, the girl who danced before Herod Antipas and asked for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so that's Philip and Salome. They're up there in the northeast area, the purple area. Later in history, two more Herods come on the scene. Today, in chapter 12 of Acts, we're going to study one of them. He is Herod Agrippa the First. He's a murderer. The next Herod who comes on the scene is um, the great-grandson of Herod the Great. He is Herod Herod Agrippa II. That's gonna be in Acts 25. This guy hung out with his sister, Bernice, and the rumor is that his sister and he were lovers. He actually was in an incestuous relationship with his sister, Bernice. Everybody say, ew, that's gross. (laughs) Okay, and so the Herods. The Herods, ruthless, murdering, power-hungry, immoral men. Have you noticed that nobody, I know it's a title, have you noticed that nobody names their son Herod? (laughs) There's lots of Peters and James and John and Pauls, the good guys in the New Testament. There's no Herods, there's a reason for that, because these guys were bad, bad people. All right, so we pick it up today in Acts chapter 12, verse one. If you're looking at that verse, please say amen. And as I keep encouraging you guys, come on man, let's follow along in our Bibles. Let's engage our minds and hearts with God's word. It says, about the time Herod the king laid, look at this, violent hands on some who belong to the what? The church. Everybody look at me. We have no idea how these Christians lived 2,000 years ago. Right. I mean, imagine right now if the back doors kicked in, here comes the government, and they lay violent hands on all of you guys. That's how these people, these Christians lived. That's right. And so Herod Agrippa the first lays violent hands on the church members. Verse two, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, that means he beheaded him. Verse three, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, okay, these are the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, those Christ-rejecting Jews, not the Jews that follow Jesus. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the days of unleavened bread. And so here in verse one, we're introduced to Herod Agrippa I. He ruled from AD 37, just until he died, we're gonna read about that later in the message, in AD 44. As I mentioned, he's Herod the Great's grandson, and he murdered James, the brother of John. This Herod, Agrippa I, He was very powerful. Not only was he given the northern part of Palestine in 37 AD, but in 41 AD, Caesar also gave him the ability to rule over Judea and Samaria. Now, what race of people live in Judea? You tell me, the Jews, the Jews. And so it's all about politics. And so this guy is like, well, how can I please my subjects in my realm? How can I please the Jews? How can I please the Sanhedrin? <laughs> and so I know, he thinks, I'll persecute the group that the Sanhedrin hates the most. Well, who's that? Christians like you and I. And so what does, James, what, what does Herod Agrippin first? do? He goes in, he grabs, his soldiers grab James, and they take off his head. And so that's the way he pleases the Jewish religious leaders in that day, just like Uncle Antipas, Herod Antipas, beheaded John the Baptist in the gospels, so Agrippa I beheads James in the book of Acts. But here's what I love about James, let's apply this to our lives. James knew that being a disciple would be easy, is that the word there? Please tell me the word. Hard. Hard. Okay. Know what you're signing up for here. James knew that being a disciple of Jesus would be hard, but he chose to follow Christ anyway, even though it cost him his life. Now, how did he know that following Jesus would be hard? Well, here's how, because Jesus told him back in the Gospels. You see, the mother of James and John one day came up to Jesus and she knelt down before the Lord. And she said, Lord, grant that when you come into your kingdom, my two sons here, James and John, can sit one on your right hand and the other on your left. And Jesus looked down at this woman and said, you don't know what you're asking for. And then he turns his attention to James and John. They're young, they're green. And he says, are you guys able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they're young and they say, we're able And he says to them, you will drink my cup. But as far as who's gonna sit on my right or left hand in my kingdom, that's the father's decision, not mine. What did Jesus mean when he said to the boys, you will drink my cup? What kind of cup? Listen, the cup of suffering. Know what you're signing up for before you follow Jesus. It's the cup of suffering Did they suffer? Oh yeah. Here in Acts 12, James becomes the first apostle to be martyred for Christ. Not the first martyr, that honor goes to Stephen. This is the first of the 12 original apostles who's martyred. And then his little brother, John, I'm assuming it's his little brother, but his little brother, John, in Revelation chapter one, he gets shipped to the island of Patmos, you guys would love Patmos today. You, you know, if you could afford it, you'd probably go to vacation in Patmos. But back in the first century, it was a Roman penal colony. It's horrible. And they arrested John, and they sent him to Patmos, the island. And according to reliable sources, John had to live in a cave at night. And then he had to work the mines, hard labor. As an old man, he worked the mines as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. You see, James and John did drink the cup of suffering that Jesus had to drink. There's a lesson in all this, and it's summed up in the words of Jesus If anyone would come out after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's your true Christian message right there, which, by the way, you'll rarely hear this on TV. You see, there's people out there who will tell you that the Christian life is all about health, wealth, and prosperity. That's their message. Almost every time you flick, it, you flick the TV on, that's the message you keep hearing. Health, wealth, and prosperity. But listen, they, 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 they got it wrong. The Christian life is actually about commitment and sacrifice and service and sometimes even suffering. Why? Because Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, know what you're signing up for. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now in our age today, there's lots of church growth schemes, there's marketing tools, you know, lots of people are into church growth and they try to get you to buy their book, and if some of those people were honest, they would say, you know, pastor, be careful about emphasizing verses like that, because verses like that really aren't the best marketing scheme to grow your church. And I would say, well, that depends. That depends on whether or not you wanna grow your church with real Christians or fake believers. What's a fake believer? A fake believer is somebody who uses Jesus as a means to an end. A fake believer is someone who has this end in mind. I want material blessings. I want health, wealth, and prosperity. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with health, wealth, and prosperity. You understand what I'm saying here? But it's not the central message of Christianity. And so I want health, wealth, and prosperity. I want material blessings. That's my end. And I'm gonna use Jesus as a means to my ends. But here's what happens so many, many times in these people's lives. I've seen it with my own eyes, is that the first time suffering and difficulty and heartache and trouble comes into their life, they're like, hasta vega, I'm out of here. I didn't sign up for this. And they're fake believers. What's a true believer? A true believer is someone who will deny themselves. What does that mean? That means that every single day, they understand that this is warfare and I've got a selfish sin nature inside of me that wants to pull me into this thinking that the world revolves around me, myself, and I. And so every single day, the Christian goes to battle and they understand that I've got to die to my selfishness. I've got to die to my self-centeredness. I've got to die to this sin nature. This is truth. Know what you're signing up for. You're either in or you're out, okay? And so they deny themselves, that sin nature, and they learn to walk in the Spirit. They learn to allow the Spirit of God to change them from the inside out. And what does the Spirit of God do in a a process called sanctification? He changes them. He makes them altruistic. That means selfless, And you don't don't get this overnight. Sanctification is a lifelong process. But listen, when you deny yourself the spirit, you surrender your will to the will of the Holy Spirit. He begins to change you more like Jesus and you become more altruistic and selfless in your life. And it's not always about bless me, bless me, bless me. But it's about how can I be a blessing to other people? How can I care for other people? I am so, yeah, we can thank God right now. But I am so glad that right now, yet again, we have another team in the worst poverty in the Western Hemisphere right now, in Haiti. And what are they doing? They're feeding and taking care of orphans. That's true Christianity. If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. What does that mean? That means that we're willing to suffer for the name of Christ. That means that if people avoid us, because we're a Christian or seek to harm us because we're a Christian or if people persecute us because we're a Christian, what do we do? We love them and forgive them from our hearts. Know what you're signing up for. You mean to tell me that if someone mocks me for my faith or tries to hurt me or stabs me in the back or talks to me behind my back, that I'm supposed to forgive them from my heart? Yep. Because if you don't forgive men, their trespasses, your father will not forgive your sins. Isn't it, aren't you glad God's forgiven us? We're sinners, we gotta forgive everybody else. Does it feel right? No, (laughs) not always. But this is the truth. Let him deny himself, take up his cross and let him follow Jesus. You know what drives me nuts is that there's people who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, do you read your Bible every day? Uh, Awkward silence. Well, how in the world are you gonna follow Jesus if you don't even read the New Testament? Where are the commands of Jesus in the New Testament? And so how can you know the commands of Jesus? How can you follow Jesus, learn and live out his commands if you're not even cracking the book and immersing yourself in the New Testament? Don't fool yourself, you're not a follower of Jesus. Immerse yourself in the word of God, find out what he says, and the power of the Spirit, live it out. And so James was willing to follow Jesus no matter what, and so was Peter. Look at what Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 21. He said, Pete, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, everybody say young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, please say old. I'll come back to that. (laughs) When you are old you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you don't want to go. And some people scratch their heads and say, "What does that mean?" Well, John thankfully gave us commentary in the very next verse. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. What kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, "Follow me." You see what the Lord is saying? in essence, to Peter, Peter, one day when you're an old guy, they're going to carry you to where you don't want to go. In other words, Peter, when you're an old guy, they're going to kill you. Can you imagine Peter had to live his whole life underneath that prophecy? You're going to be martyred for the faith. But even so, Peter, follow me. Follow me. The Lord did not promise Peter health, wealth or prosperity. He promised that he would suffer and die. And yet he said, follow me anyway. And so don't misunderstand me. The Christian life, is the Christian life filled with blessings from God? Yes or no, you tell me. Yes, absolutely yes. But the Christian life is also marked by suffering. And you can't accept one without accepting the other. And so in verse two, we see that Herod Agrippa I killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And this was during the seven day feast of unleavened bread. Verse four. And when he had seized Peter, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Wow, Herod must be paranoid that Peter's gonna escape. Maybe someone told him what happened back in Acts chapter five. And so he delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover to bring him out to the people. And so a Roman squad, in case you didn't know, is made up of four soldiers. Herod, usually one squad's plenty. Herod assigns four squads to guard Peter. That's 16 soldiers. And no doubt these 16 soldiers worked around the clock in shifts. And so four soldiers in one squad for every six hours around the clock. And so what would happen? Two soldiers would walk into the cell, all right, and they would chain themselves to Peter. One soldier here, Peter in the middle, chain, chain to another soldier. Outside his cell, you have two more guards and they're standing, watching to make sure that no one tries to come and help Peter escape. Six hours pass. Oh, here comes the next four guys, the next squad. All right, and they come in and they unchain themselves and the new guys chain themselves to Peter. This is what you call maximum security. And they would guard him until after the feast and then Herod would bring him out and no doubt, due to Peter, exactly what he did to James, take off his head. Look at Verse five. It says in verse five, so Peter was kept in prison, but, I love it, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the who? The church. Ladies and gentlemen, all I have to say here in verse five is do not, do not ever underestimate the power of prayer. Prayer changes things. Yes, prayer changes things. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. And anyone who would come to God must come to him believing that he exists. But prayer changes things. Look at verse six now. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, he's about to bring Peter out on that very night. So he's about to bring him out. This is the end of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. So this is the last night, okay? And so on that very night, Peter was, what's the word? Sleeping. Can you believe this guy? He's sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And I, before I move on, I gotta ask the question, how could Peter sleep at a time like this? How can he sleep? He's about to get executed. One of his best friends in the whole world just got their head chopped off and he's next on the chopping block. This is the real deal. And not only that, he's chained between two big, burly Roman soldiers. You would think he'd be filled with anxiety. You would think his eyes would be like saucers right now. How, but, but he's sleeping. And he's, as we're gonna see in a minute, in a very deep sleep. And so how was Peter able to sleep? There's actually two reasons. Number one, real quick, is because the church was praying for him. Hey, if you're having trouble sleeping, humble yourself, be vulnerable. Go to someone and say, who's a Christian and say, hey, I'm having trouble. Problem sleeping, will you pray for me? You see, Christianity means that we have to swallow our pride and be real about our shortcomings and weaknesses in order to get prayer because it's not about how big and bad we are, it's about how awesome God is. Peter had the church praying for him, but I wanna camp out on this next reason. I believe that Peter was, was able to sleep because of what Jesus said to him earlier. Do you remember? Jesus said, when you are, please say the next word, Old. You will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you to where you do not want to go. The Lord told Peter, Peter, when you're an old guy, you're going to be martyred for the faith. Where are we now in history? We're in Acts 12. This is AD 44. Peter is not an old guy, Peter's just a middle aged man. And so I personally believe that Peter knew I'm not going to get killed until I'm old. And so I don't know how this is gonna happen, but God is going to spare my life. I'm just gonna go to bed. (laughs) He falls asleep. How's your sleep been lately? Are you filled with anxiety in the middle of the night, tossing and turning, thinking about that whatever situation? Do you know the scriptures have something to say about a good night's rest? In Psalm 4, David, who, by the way, had his fair share of troubles, he said, because he trusted the Lord so much, he said, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In Proverbs, we're promised that if we seek wisdom, here's the result. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. And then my favorite, after talking about the vanity of working really hard, filled with anxiety, working hard is good, but the anxiety part's not. And so after talking about the vanity of working hard, filled with anxiety, he says, no, 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 listen, for he gives his beloved sleep. Peter had a promise from the Lord. And he took the promise to the bank. And so he was able to sleep even in the midst of a difficult situation. I wanna encourage you to meditate on the promises of God. Ladies and gentlemen, we gotta cooperate with the Lord in the sanctification process. We can't just sit there and just have him do everything. So do some work. Meditate on the promises of God. One way you can do that is go to gotquestions.org. Yes, I am promoting the website again. And type in, what are the promises of God? And what happens is that you'll get a bunch of precious promises from the Lord, read through them, and then see which one, you know, jumps off the page at you and memorize that thing. Memorize it. Memorize it in your head, believe it in your heart, and recite it with your lips at two o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep because of whatever anxiety you're feeling. Now, don't shout it out loud so you wake up your wife or husband. Just whisper it to the Lord. And I believe that if we will take God at his word like Peter did, he'll help us to have sweet, deep sleep. And so while Peter slept, something awesome happened. I love this. Look at verse seven now. So if you're looking at verse seven, say amen. Amen. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter. (laughs) This angel is something else. He struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. This guy's like no nonsense business like angel here. (laughs) Verse nine. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading them into the city and it opened for them of its own accord. The power of God. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. Didn't even say goodbye. Verse 11, when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish, all that the Jewish people, again, Sanhedrin, religious leaders who rejected Christ because Peter was a Jew, okay? From all that the Jewish people were expecting. And so after his release, Peter thought, man, God is so good. He delivered me from Herod. But before we move on, I gotta ask the question. What about James? What about James? Why did God rescue Peter, but not James? You see, both men loved the Lord. Both men devoted their lives to serve the Lord, and yet one was set free, and the other was killed in the prime of his life. Now, be careful here because lots of Christians have lots of answers that are wrong. And some people would say, well, it's because, you know, James wasn't as spiritual as Peter or James must have sinned. Please, do me a favor. Don't ever say that to anybody in this local church, this local fellowship. James must not have been spiritual enough. James must have done something wrong. He must have sinned. Or you hear this a lot in some circles. James didn't have enough faith like Peter did. And all of our human answers conjured up in our small little brains are all wrong. You see, here's the truth. If you're with me, say amen here. The truth is this. God is very big and we are very small. He's always right and we're often wrong. God is very big and we are very small. He is always right and we are often wrong. Look at what Paul wrote to the Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? You see, God's wisdom is so deep, like Atlantic Ocean deep. God's wisdom is so deep and his ways are so unsearchable that how can we ever know the infinite mind of the Lord and how can we ever presume to give him counsel? Oh man, that's just smacks of arrogance, doesn't it? The creation counseling the creator Okay, and so not only is God omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, not only is he omniscient, meaning that he's all-knowing, and not only is he omnipresent, which means that he's everywhere at the exact same time, but he's also omnibenevolent. What does that mean? That means that God is good, and he's always good. He's totally good. He's completely good. He's good all the time. Look at what John said. He said, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. No darkness ever in God. And the question is, do you really believe that? Not with your head, but do you believe that with your heart? That God is light and in him is no darkness at all? You see, if we believe this, we wouldn't question God as to why he would take one guy home in the prime of his life and leave another guy around until he's an old guy like Peter. It leads us to our next point, and that's, when we're perplexed about life, we can trust that our father knows best. Our father knows best. Listen, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, eternal, sovereign, and wrong? No, he can't be wrong. In him is no darkness at all. We just gotta learn to trust him which is hard for us because some people, you know, they have this attitude because they're hurt and emotions cloud our judgment. And because they're hurt, they have this attitude. Well, God's got some splaining to do to me. When I get up there, he's gonna have to answer some questions. No, you're not gonna judge him. He's gonna judge you. Do you believe this? Say Amen. Yeah, it's true. It's hard, but it's true. If you struggle with why bad things happen to good people, it'd be good to remind yourself of Job. You remember him. And so here's Job. He's a righteous, good guy, right? And all of a sudden, one day, the Sabian raiders come in, and they kill his servants, and they steal his oxen, And his donkeys. And then on the same day, fire falls from the sky and burns up his shepherds and his sheep. And on the same day, more raiders come in, Chaldean raiders. They kill more of his servants and steal his camel. This is all his livelihood. But then way worse than any livelihood. On the same day, a horrible storm comes and hits the house of Job's oldest son. And it collapses on his 10 kids Seven sons, three daughters, crushed, gone. And when that happened, I ask you, those of you who've read Job, did Job walk outside and shake his fist at God and say, why God? Why would you ever do this to me? Was that his attitude? No. Here's what he did. He shaved his head, he fell on the ground, and he worshiped the Lord. Wow. And then he said, naked, I, I Came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Father knows best. And in all this, Job did not sin. He didn't say, you got some explaining to do. No, he did not sin or charge God with any wrong. Job kept following the Lord no matter what happened, good or bad. And so like Job, we gotta come to the place in our lives where we realize that God's the potter and we're just the clay. And I've never seen a, a clay pot look up at a potter and say, why'd you make me this way? Or why did you let that happen? I've never seen it. And we shouldn't do the same thing to our father. God rarely answers the why question. Did you guys hear that? God rarely answers answers the why question. He just wants us to trust that he knows best. And so after Peter was released from prison, it says now in verse 12, when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, that's his Hebrew name, whose other name was Mark, that's his Greek name, John Mark, the author of the second gospel in your New Testament. So Mary's got a church in her house, the big house, and her son is John Mark. And there was many, at the end of verse 12, there were many gathered together, and what were they doing at the end of verse 12? Praying. Praying. And when Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, <laughs> but ran in and reported that Peter is standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel, right? And I'm not gonna get into it, but the Jews in the first century believed that everybody had a guardian angel and the guardian angel was able to assume the likeness and looks of the person that they were guarding. Verse 16, but Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed, But they're all like, ah, and Peter lifts his hand up. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to who? James. James. You say, I thought he died. No, this is now James, the pastor of the Jerusalem church, who wrote the epistle in the back of your New Testament Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went out to another place. I love this story. So while the church is praying in Mary's house, there's a knock at the door. And Rhoda's like, I'll get it. And she goes, and Mary's got a big house. If a church is gonna meet in your house, it's a pretty big house. And there's a courtyard outside. So she leaves the house, goes out in the courtyard and around the house, there was a solid wall. And then there's a solid gate with a solid door next to the gate. The gate, animals and carts would go through. The door, human beings would go through. He's, Peter's outside at the door. She's like, who is it? It's Peter. And she's like, ah! She turns around, (laughs) runs back in the house, leaving Peter outside. And she goes in and apparently they're all still praying. Lord, deliver Peter. Oh, in Jesus' name. God, help him. Help him, Jesus, right? And she's like, hey, Peter's at the gate. And they look up from their prayers and they're like, you're crazy. Peter's in prison. We're praying for him. Stop interrupting us. They go back to praying. Lord, deliver Peter, Jesus. In your name, I pray. She's like, no, really? He's he's out at the gate. And the whole time Peter's out there knocking. The soldiers are going to come get me. Let me in. And so they, the whole church now, because they safety in numbers, they go out to the courtyard, to the door of the gate, and one, two, three, they open it up, and there's Peter, and they're like, Peter, and they're surprised. And I'm thinking, weren't you just praying for his release? Isn't this crazy? And so they were praying for his release, yet they were surprised to see that he had been released. What does this tell us? This tells us that these Christians didn't have the strongest faith. And yet, listen, it's not primarily about how strong our faith is. It's not primarily about how big our faith is. It's more about how big our God is. Jesus said you just need faith like a mustard seed. And so, Peter's free, they're rejoicing, but not everybody's rejoicing, especially not the soldiers. Look at verse 18 now. Now when the day came, there was was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries, he's mad, and ordered that they should be put to death. If you're a Roman soldier and your your prisoner gets away, you're dead. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now everybody look at me, we're almost done. But here's Herod thinking he's all that. He kills James, he arrests Peter and he slaughters these Roman soldiers. Because he's the judge and jury? Um, No, he's now gonna get judged. Verse 20, now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, two cities in Phoenicia, north of Israel. And they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain or personal assistant, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And they're like, man, Blastus, tell Agrippa the 1st we're hungry and we wanna be, peace, be at peace with him. Verse 21, and on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and he took his seat on the throne and he delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. In other words, we'll call you whatever you want us to call you. Just give us some food, right? And immediately, verse 23, an angel of the Lord struck him down. I believe this is the same no-nonsense angel that delivered Peter. He just struck him down because he did not give God the glory And he was eaten by worms, in the Greek, tapeworms. And he breathed his last. And so Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, said that when Herod came out to give his speech, he was wearing a beautiful silver garment. And it was in the morning, and so the sun rays reflected off of his garment and dazzled the crowd. And they're like, the voice of a God not of a man. And here was his fatal mistake. He believed their praise. I guess I am pretty great and boom, he struck down. And Josephus tells us that five days after the speech, he's dead, he's gone. And so the year is AD 44. Here's your last verses. Look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service You remember delivering the famine relief money from the Antioch church to the Jerusalem church? We'll get to that next week. Bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. And so I want you guys in closing to remember this, that Herod glorified himself and he passed off the scene. The disciples glorified the Lord and their movement increased and expanded. Did you know that your number one purpose in life is to live for the glory of God? And on that note, I leave you with the answer to question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? And I want all of us to read the answer on the count of three. You ready, one, two, three. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's why you were created. And that's why I was created. And so whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, let's do it all to the glory of God. You want meaning? You want purpose in your life? Surrender your will to the Lord's will and become a follower of Jesus Christ and live for his glory. This life's a vapor. You're here today, gone tomorrow. And I'm telling you, when you get to the other side, you will have wished that you listened to your pastor. Do not give in to this culture. Do not give in to the immorality, the profanity of this culture. Listen, any dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a fish that is alive to swim upstream. We are called to be alive in Christ and to go against the grain and live for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.